from the Advertising Week studios here in New York City, welcome to Great Minds, the podcast. I'm your host, Matt Schechner. Each week, you'll hear from a unique guest, stories of inspiration, innovation, and tales you're unlikely to hear anywhere else. So sit back, buckle up, and welcome to Great Minds. Do you want me to? Yeah, when you uh, started, repeat a little bit, just in different. I don't know if I can do it as well again. I mean, that was so perfect. You know, it's like Olga Corbett in '72 in Munich. Once you get a ten in gymnastics, how do you do that again? I don't know. Uh, what's your name from UCLA? So you can do it. Can I start cursing at you or not yet? We're being recorded, and that'll come back to me in a HR lawsuit. Okay, you ready again? Today, my guest is Claudia Romo Edelman. Claudia is a Mexican-Swiss diplomat who's a special advisor to the United Nations and the founder of the We Are All Human Foundation. She is a tireless advocate to advance the cause of Hispanics on the issues of equity, inclusion, and representation. In 1985, on September 19, at 17 minutes past 7, Mexico City was struck by an earthquake of 8.0 magnitude. For months, scientists at the University of California had predicted a powerful earthquake in Mexico. In just one minute, 100,000 houses crumbled, 5,000 people died, and roughly 5 million residents were left without electricity or water. People took to the streets, helping those injured. But the residents, including my guest for this week, were overwhelmed by the scale of the damage. They did all they could to help people trapped in the rubble. What Claudia Romo Edelman learned from the tragedy would impact her for the rest of her life and shape her career. She was just a teenager at the time. When, um, when you are in a situation like that, um, you know, like everybody was, at least, at least in the community where I was, the, you know, like the south of Mexico was literally destroyed. And so the first, the first earthquake um, resulted in a number of our, our neighbors, houses and buildings being destroyed. And everybody was out scared of the second and second, second and third. But the most important part that I think happened was that, um, every, there was a collective panic. Literally the entire city could not sit anymore or be in a street, you know, like if you were in your car, the earth was shaking and it was quite hard. And we did not know where our friends or family were all the time. The communication was broken. So everybody became a volunteer one day after the other. We had to shelter for a week or because we were scared that our, the neighborhood was actually going to hit again. And I, I think that there is, Matt, one story in every human being that all, all, it's like almost you can go back to that defines who you are and what you mm. do. And that was mine. The day in which we started volunteering and my job was to try to sweep the streets one after the other of my neighborhood. Actually, it was not my neighborhood, but one neighborhood 
trying to find people that were trapped in the buildings. And I was the only teenager in this group of big men. And we were walking and it was loud and there were ambulance and there was smoky and so on. But nevertheless, I had that feeling, that one second that I thought I heard a voice. So I screamed out loud and said like, stop, I think I heard a voice. Mm. And no one heard me. And there was this one guy that responded to the second cry that I did. He said like, did you think you heard a voice or did you hear a voice? And in that moment, I just started screaming like maniac, like, come back, come back, come back. And so by the time he came back, we were able to actually listen to the voice. And so when he looked at me in the eye, we started both crying out loud, come, come back, come so back. So you were able come. to rescue that. And 20 people came. We started pushing that huge building on the wall for hours and hours until in that moment, there was a ray of light coming in and there was this huge eyes of this little girl that oh. had dust in her eyelashes and so, so all of a sudden saw me as in like, you got me, right? So it took hours to still move that wall. We were able to rescue the girl. I was able to see how the mother saw her by the time she was out there and she was hugging her. And it was the first time in my life that I felt useful. In all the years that I had experienced this planet, I never felt that feeling. And not only was addicted and I felt really, really good, but also I understood one more thing, which is my father used to complain all the time. You're so loud. You're so loud. And I was like, oh, yeah, hmm. I get it. This is what I'm supposed, this is being loud is being good. Being me is being good. I was able to help someone. And luckily for me, I've been able to do that for more than 25 years. I've been able to actually do that advocacy, trying to bring the attention of people to things that they probably haven't seen and probably they haven't heard. I'm working on AIDS, tuberculosis and malaria, I'm working for UNICEF, I'm working for refugees. And right now working on diversity and inclusion, trying to make sure that people see Hispanics, hear Hispanics and value Hispanics in this country. So luckily that earthquake experience was able to shape not only what I do and what I am, uh, what I, who I am and what I do, but also to be able to actually accept who you are and just go big on that. I have, I have chills thinking of that little girl meeting your eyes, it was so, you know, 35 years ago. That's a long time. It was moving and, and it was shaping. And that really, that drug that you got, the buzz of helping people, that has really fueled an incredible career that's taken you all over the world, working with the UN and many other global organizations. Tell us about your first job, because I think you went for a job that wasn't really there. Right. So That's tell us right. about that. Well, tell us that, about that. Um, I, um, I, I got addicted to the, the feeling of being useful and also being able to speak and communicate. So I thought that my, my role would be to be a diplomat. So I was offered a job to be a diplomat in Switzerland. And when I got there, there was no job, but I was proud enough not to be able to go back to Mexico. So I started actually looking for what could I do right. in Europe, you know, like for a couple of months. And then I was offered a job that took me to diplomacy for a number of years, but that was not really my thing. So I, I was doing journalism at the side. Um, so working as a diplomat and doing journalism was really instructive for me about like how storytelling really matters, even in diplomacy. How is it, you know, like it's all about uh, making sure that you connect at the human level and understand that whether you're in Switzerland or in Mexico, there are human values and human needs that connect everyone, regardless of who you are, rich or poor. You always want to see your parents well. You care about your children. You want to laugh. You want to eat, regardless of 
where you're from. So I think that having that experience of diplomacy and journalism and then decided that probably my, my interest was more in global affairs was, uh, was, was great for me. And here on Great Minds, we like to ask our guests, who influenced them? When you were younger, as you were just finding your way, who were the great minds that you looked up to or that mentored you and helped you in your career early on? I mean, obviously, there is a line on my family. I am, um, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm blessed to have very strong woman in my family from my mother, my grandmother, and so on. Even my mother was a great mind for me. Um, if I, you know, like if I recall, she, um, she was a professional basketball player. She was part of the national team of basketball in Mexico. Um, went to the Olympics, for, you know, like all the games representing Mexico to then have children and start a new career and having to say like, okay, I'm going to be an economist because this is probably more suited, you know, like for a mother with, with children to later reinvent herself completely and being an actress starting at 40, who's still, I mean, my mother right now, she's on set in, you know, like in Televisa recording her soap opera, you know, like at her. So looking at those great minds that say, Fear shall never actually, you know, like limit your opportunities and just go for the things that you want to do. And if you want to be a basketball player and then an economist and an actress, everything is possible. So that was a great example of, you know, like not only a strong woman, but also a person that was able to tell me that, you know, like everything is possible and you can go for everything. But I, I, I think that on the, on the bigger, on the bigger scheme of things, um, I was exposed to a number of, you know, like great minds, politicians, media. My father had that feeling of um, you. One of the main, main things is that if we invite someone home is because they are interested. So you as a kid, you have to ask three questions and be with them at least for five minutes so that you understand why they're here and what can you learn from everybody. So uh, there is a number of uh, authors you know, like from the, you know, like intellectual circles in Mexico that were great for me as children. My mother actually was helping um, hide Cubans or, you know, like uh, get people mm -hmm. that were, were in need of basketball players and so on that were showing me songs when I was a young, you know, like a young person. But in general, I would say from my adulthood on, people like Ariana Huffington that have been, you know, like rescuing, you know, young uh, people, I met her 25 years ago or something like that. She was like, I will tell you everything I know like about life. You have to work based on value. You never do anything that doesn't bring value to people because otherwise they're not going to be able to bring value to you. And I think that those are the kind of lessons that I recall now. Fantastic. Now you've worked on some of the most challenging subjects facing our planet. You've worked on AIDS, you've worked on poverty, I know that you're very involved with the UN and the Sustainable Development Goals. We see these enormous challenges. Have we made a difference? And how can we make more of a difference? Poverty in particular, is it's so heartbreaking. And not just what you see around the world, but what you see here in our own country, in Los Angeles, in San Francisco, in our own town of New York. Um, tell us, where have we seen progress and how can we make more progress? I love this question. I love this question all the time and every time because the world is absolutely making progress. There is absolutely no question. If you 
Um, if you're bombarded all the time by negative news, and if you only are exposed to you know what is not working, necessarily you will be think be thinking that the world is actually going backwards, that our future is dark. But if you see it the way that I was sitting on the 38th floor of the United Nations and you have access to the data in a macro level and you would actually be able to see the trends, you would see that if you would be a baby girl flying in the sky anytime in history, you, you decide where should I be born? Where should I be born? Middle age, the caves, 10 years ago, five years ago, or today, there's no better time for a baby girl to be born than today. There's no better time to have electricity, access to electricity, access to education, access to choice, access to health. There is absolutely no comparison. We have been eradicating uh, poverty in half in the last 20 years. We have been increasing the access to electricity worldwide to 90%. Education parity for girls is up to 90% compared to, to men. And those are changes that will not be reverted. We just need to make sure that we don't do anything to divert that, right. uh, that progression rate. And the one thing that really concerns me, there are two things, looking at the scheme of things, looking at the progression of the world. We are making progress, but there are two things that concern me. One is climate change. And that has to really be acted upon because those are not macroeconomic levels. Those are, you know, like there's there's only one planet. There's no planet B. So we have to act on the plan that we have, which is the sustainable development goals. But the second one, Matt, is that divisive language is getting traction everywhere and too fast. And when you start having a sense of separation, of that sense of the otherness, and you think that you belong to a human group that others don't belong to, if you think that you have right to education and health, but others don't because they don't look like you or feel like you, then you start creating that sense of the otherness that when it really goes fast and wide, then starts creating division and starts creating anger and starts creating issues like Brexit and issues like populism right. and right. that the division of actually not understanding that we do belong to the same human family, that if there would be an earthquake, the same that I experienced, it would take everybody. It wouldn't distinct whether you're a Republican or a Democrat or whether sure. you're a receptionist or a CEO. It will take everyone, of course, starting with the most uh, underprivileged um, populations. But normally that divisive language is the one thing that can derail the progress that we're making. So when we look out at the landscape here in America now, where is that leadership to bring us back together going to come from? Because it doesn't seem like it's going to come from Washington right now. Where is it going to come from? Companies have a huge role to play, um, particularly an emphasis on technology companies that need to understand that their algorithms are actually siloing instead of like bringing together. So if you are, um, you know, like if you're sitting in your computer, the likelihood is that the algorithm knows exactly what you want to hear and is going to keep on giving you evidence about the things that you want to hear and that you have like the reinforcement to get you hooked. So at the end of the day, I think that having that sense of, you know, like separation and siloed is, 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 is very dangerous. And I think that tech companies have to bust the bubbles and allow people to see, be exposed to different opinions, as opposed to just like looking at a business model that looks into, into engagement per se. Uh, private companies are hot for diversity and inclusion. There is absolutely no question that they right. got the equation that if they don't have a diverse workforce, they're not going to be able to attract a diverse 
consumer base that if they don't act as inclusive, um, people are not going to be able to work for them, buy from them and choose other brands that have a better heart. Millennials are pushing, Gen Z's are pushing. They are 100% for tolerance. They are 100% for inclusion and they don't want to be, you know, like they don't want to be labeled on any event. So I think that the change and the leadership will come from visionary companies and visionary people that see that diversity and inclusion is not only a great thing to do for our planet, but also a great business to be, you know, like a great thing. Well, I want to talk about Hispanic Star in a second, but you gave me an incredible statistic a few minutes ago before we got on the air about the percentage of Hispanics and the average age and where the population is and where it's going. Tell us about that. It's crazy. U.S. Hispanics, um, which, by the way, is a label I didn't know about. I moved to America five years ago to learn that I was a Hispanic. I lived my entire life as a happy Mexican. And then you move to America and, oh, you are a Hispanic. And I'm like, wow, what is this? And so this exciting group that I thought about, you know, like before moving in, uh, when I was learning is 60 million people, 18% of the population, 12% of the GDP, so $2.3 trillion. If you would put Hispanics, U.S. Hispanics, as a standalone economy, would be the eighth largest in the world. So if you are wow. thinking of your global growth strategy, like if your Japan is more convenient to, to invest in U.S. Hispanics than having an investment in Italy, Spain, Greece together. Mm -hmm. um, look, uh, the, the most interesting part about Hispanics is not only that we're many, that we're you know, like growing in number, that our wallet is growing increasingly, $1.7 trillion in purchasing power, but the age, we're so young. 29 years old average, Matt. So six years younger than the average. But the most interesting data there is that the mode, meaning the most common age of 60 million Hispanics is 11. The most common age, meaning the mode of non-Hispanics is 58 years old. Right. So that incredible gap allows you to see that's the, that, that's the insight. Hispanics are young and are invisible. And they have an incredible loyalty to be developed, to be catched by brands and companies that understand that this is a huge segment of society that is ready to be seen. And, you know, I remember my first job out of college, I worked for Mayor Koch. It was something called the Commission on the Year 2000. And it was a plan for New York. This came out in 1986. And one of the chapters that I was responsible for was on demographics. And you can see exactly where the future is going to be. We know demographically what the roadmap is. Mm -hmm. It's do we prepare for it? Do we embrace those opportunities? So the companies today that are recognizing the power of the Hispanic market, they're not only going to benefit today, but they're really going to benefit down the road. Yes, and not only, like, look, you can see it both ways, right? Should we not invest in the Hispanic community? Should we have 60 out of the next 100 million U.S. citizens not having enough education, not having enough training, not having enough, you know, like, that's a threat for the country to start with. We have to make sure that the population of, you know, like, of America receives um, all its need to be able to be an asset for society and to be absolutely contributing positively. Um, on the other hand, if you look at it on the positive way, which is what we do, this is the absolute growth engine for any company that has businesses in America. There's absolutely no question that our, you know, like if you have a wallet of $1.7 trillion in purchasing power and you're so young, 
Today, by 2050, we're going to be 30% of the population of the country with an increasing wallet. And not only that, it's the values of Hispanics that actually give me the, the sense and the, the certainty that it will continue being a good business. Hardworking, mm -hmm. optimist, aspirational, uh, fighters. So 45% of all Hispanics have moved in the last 10 years from low income to middle income because they go one, two, three jobs and they just keep on going. And the most interesting part is the way in which they connect. So families, Hispanic families stay together, two parents. We don't have that single mother issue, you know, like that breaks uh, the tissue of social tissue or communities. Right. And because we're so generous with our love, so we're like, you know, the most uh, common interracial marriage. That means that we're, we're you know, like we're going to keep on expanding. So I think that it is, you know, like it is a great, uh, it's a great data point for anyone that needs to actually see where the future labor force will be, the future consumer will be, and the future consumer and employee will be. Let's go back now to President Roosevelt in 1945 and jump ahead to March 26th in Chicago at Comiskey Park. Tell us what those two things have in common. Um, well, the, the one thing that I can talk about is that um, if not all, most Hispanic organizations and Hispanic leaders are taking a joint plan. We have a plan. And the plan is called, we're going to change our perception and we're going to own our narrative and our story. And we're going to do that through the generosity of a donation that we got from WPP, a multi-million dollar donation that we got to create a campaign. And this campaign is called the Hispanic Star, which is based on one symbol to unify all Hispanics. The Hispanic Star is precisely the way that we want to be framed and we've seen and we be able to be proud and loud because we are stars. America is made of stars and Hispanics are one of them. So we just have a, a like we want to make sure that we are able to shine as the stars who we are. We're the astronauts, we're the academics, we're the business owners, the entrepreneurs, the workers, the, you know, like community people that care about this country. And so the launch is actually at the with the White Sox at the opening game of the MLB in Chicago, March 26th. I think that this is the beginning where we're going to be exposing the symbol. We're going to have a number of Hispanics from the community there. Uh, we're inviting companies and individuals to be tuned in so that we can have a social activation that day. But more than that, the opportunities for the year are Hispanic Heritage Month, which is right now an absolutely dull celebration. You know, like any company use it as, as a check the list on, okay, let's have a half an hour bad margaritas with some tacos and let's call it a day. And we did all what we needed for Hispanics. No, we want to make sure that this is a huge, you know, like celebration where we can see the love of companies, where we can see that they are Hispanic friendly by putting the symbol on their windows, in their T-shirts, in their talking points, in everything that we're doing. We want to see it everywhere, the way that we see pride as an opportunity, you know, like to showcase your support for the LGBTQ community. As a fact, this campaign, the Hispanic Star, is inspired by the Pride, uh, by the pride campaign and the, the incredible effort that, you know, like that the rainbow had allowed to, right. to leverage and target. So, But it's pride, but it's also about economic power. It's totally about economic power. Um, yes, a, a Hispanic star is not only an individual that can speak about themselves as in like, I am a Hispanic star, but it's also a company. 
I'm a Hispanic star because I care about Raul and Roberto and let me showcase them and let me tell you how they role models they are. And it's about, you know, like activating communities and organizations. And so we have incredible programs um, that we would like to showcase because they are star programs for the Hispanic community. I think that a lot of these will come to in, in, way, in, in a way where we, whether we can win the hearts and the minds of the people in this country to, you know, like be open and showcase their support for their, their citizens. And that's why the creative industry and the advertisement industry play such an incredible role in taking such a pure idea. This is the first ever time that there's a campaign for Hispanics to change their perception so that we can finally match the reality of what Hispanics are. Hispanics are huge, but they just are perceived as small. They are powerful, but we think weak. So there's a chance actually for the advertisement community to play ball with us and just help us change this uh, equation and just like correct this reverse marketing problem that we have. And how did you stumble upon this 1945 Hispanic version of the national anthem? Yeah, that's, that's, that's something that is, you know, like historically, historically um, American President Roosevelt was very, very uh, supportive of Hispanics, particularly coming about after the war. Um, and, you know, like wanted to incentivize, uh, it wanted to incentivize and integrate Hispanics in a number of ways. And as a fact, one of the things, which is a little secret, one of the things that we will do for the 26th of March is use one, um, one action point that President Roosevelt gave an order in 1945. So stay tuned. And if you want to stay with us, um, you know, like we would love to share that with you once you watch the we MLB would, game. We, uh, the we would love to have you back in April. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about when you look out in the landscape, you deal with an awful lot of interesting people. Yes. I'm sure you're at a lot of interesting dinner parties. You're at interesting meetings. You're meeting people on airplanes. Who out there, what are the great minds of today that inspire you? You mentioned Ariana, who we all love. Yeah. Um, Richard Elman, my husband, is an incredible mind. He's a great mind. And it's yeah. fantastic to actually be able to see a great mind in layers. So that is, if it would be an onion, you can see it in different ways. And so being able to be next to Richard and seeing how he operates as a businessman, as a CEO, but also, you know, like as a peer, as a father, as, as a husband, as a friend, you know, like in, in good moments, in, in bad moments, it's fantastic. It is great actually to be able to see um, the global mind that comes with, you know, like with, a, with a great, the global mindset of a great mind like Richard. Um, People that I admire in your industry, Peter Georgescu, who I work with next to each other. I mean, like he's my neighbor in my office and I'm always picking his, his brain in understanding how he was the first person that ever told me probably like 10, if not 15 years ago, that the last call for companies um, was happening, companies that didn't have purpose or impact in their business case. It was their, their last call. Uh, 10, 15 years ago, and, and, and boy, he was super right, which is what he says about diversity and inclusion right now uh, and about, you know, like making sure that every every person is a citizen. Um, but I am exposed, Matt, to incredible, as as you know, like we're, we and you and I are networkers, we're connectors, yeah, so we like sure actually connecting people and just like looking at each other and being able to connect the dots and, and see trends and see opportunities.
you know, going back to Richard, I re- saw him a couple of weeks ago when they unveiled the trust barometer right. for this year. And he was way ahead of the game on the importance of 20 trust. 20 years ago. Way ahead. Wow. Talk yes. about trust as a currency and how that fuels what you do. And massively. And, and again, you know, like who knew that I was going to be speaking so much about Richard, uh, you know, like with you here. But I think that trust is at the center of, of, of every transaction that humans will have, particularly in a time in which there is automation happening and there's, there's so much, you know, so much innovation. The trust in human, uh, you know, like in human capital will be even more essential. What I learned from Richard in the analysis of the 20 years of the trust barometer this year is that trust is eroding, is evaporating, uh, increasingly so in institutions. And there's a real danger in actually distrusting and questioning systems, capitalism, democracy, um, not only governments and media, which are already happened, uh, you know, like happened a couple of years ago, but the entire system. Imagine that you wouldn't be able to sit in a plane because you don't know if it's going to fly or, or, or not, or that you're like the level of distrust could be really disruptive. And at the center of everything is anger and fear. And that's where it touches my world, because I think that anger and fear are derived from the sense that you're not going to be able to have the same opportunities that you should have or that you that others have, that your future is going to be taken by a machine or a robot, that you're not sure about the jobs, that you're not sure about what you're reading, that you're not, you know, like that there's a disconcert that really affects or, or makes you fear. And at the center of everything is inequality, is that sense of, I am not part of the game, you know, where the rules, the, the, the rules, the, the, the rules of the game are different from uh, for me than to, for other people. And that's where purpose, impact, diversity, inclusion meet as ways and tools to restore trust, to be able to show, uh, be transparent about the things that you're doing to actually have a better, you know, like a better product so that you can package it better so that you can retrain that trust. So I work with. 150 companies that have signed a pledge called the Hispanic Promise that we launched a year ago. 150 companies, Fortune 500 companies, have joined in a year. That spells to me an absolute desire, like hunger, to make sure that people are showcasing what they're doing, that you know, like they need to speak about their efforts, they need to regain trust in certain communities. And I absolutely think that um, having a loss of trust um, in a number of institutions has allowed businesses to step up and be the business avengers of saving the world, uh, which is something that the trust barometer is, is clearly indicating. My only concern about that one is that um, we don't want to create fake expectations and false expectations so that people don't think that companies can really solve climate change or other things that right. really they are not equipped to do. Right. Claudia, you have an incredible positive spirit. How do you keep yourself up? And when you're a little down, how do you lift yourself back up? <laughs> I am very optimistic. I'm a, I'm a, I'm I, not, lo- I love that about you. <laughs> but I'm not only optimistic, I'm possibilistic. 
Um, I learned that from my mentor, Hans Rosling, whose book, by the way, everybody should read is called Factfulness. And it is, it is just about that because I see the data and I see the possibilities of making change. And it doesn't mean that it is perfect, but I see the trend is happening. Um, so on the personal, on the personal side, my, I, I was one of three siblings and two of them died. And I was a survivor and I grew up with that, you know, like sense of you're, you're, you're stronger than dead and everything is possible. If you were able to defeat death, then you can do everything. So I think that that's, that's the, the, the mark from my growing up. But then seeing the data and seeing that, you know, like we are making change. I mean, like every industry I've worked in is better today than it was when I touched it. And when I'm down, what I do is actually go to the places where um, that can give me the anger to have a first uh, first hand experience and then just go back. So that fuels you. Yeah. Well, you are extraordinary and we've Thank loved you. having you on Great Minds, the podcast. Our guest today was Claudia Romo Edelman. Claudia, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so, so much for the opportunity. And it's so great to be in your company. Wonderful. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this, visit advertisingweek360.com. In the next episodes of Great Minds, we have some pretty incredible guests, including Susie Essman, who's best known as Susie from Curb Your Enthusiasm. I, I love the core team. I love the family. You know, I mean, one of my favorites to work with was my dear friend Bob Einstein, Marty Funkhauser, who died last year and it was greatly missed this season. I mean, that was a character that you just can't replace, Bobby. You, you just can't. It was one of the funniest people alive. And uh, it, that was, it's just a loss. You know, it's the family. It's, it's me, Cheryl, Larry, Jeff, Leon, uh, Lewis, and Funkhauser. That's the family. And Undaba Mandela, who will be talking about his work and grandfather. We have a huge problem of leadership in the world today. Wouldn't the world be a better place if we had more Mandelas or more leaders that led like Nelson Mandela?